our Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Jeremiah once again. We're in chapter 5 tonight, so Jeremiah chapter 5, and uh, I'm going to read the first nine verses and ask if you'll just follow along for a few moments and listen in and follow your Bible there while I read from Jeremiah 5, verses 1 through 9. We won't read the entire chapter, but we will be looking at verses through the entire chapter in a bit. It may save us a little bit of time now. We'll just read verses 1 through 9. Listen to what the prophet says. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. And though they say, The Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. I will get me unto the great men and will speak unto them, for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Wherefore, a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evenings shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goeth out thence shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many, and their backslidings are increased. How shall I pardon for this? Thy children have forsaken me, and sworn by them that are no gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery, and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses." They were as fed horses in the morning, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord, and shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? So we'll stop reading there, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 5 tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the day. I thank you, Father, for safety and coming to church tonight, especially as now it's a bit darker and we're a little bit more challenged as we drive. Pray again now through these winter months, whether it's the darkness or the weather, that you will watch over us and protect us. And we're just so grateful for the privilege that we have to assemble. And we read in your word that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And thank you as we come and obey, you bless. And although I'm sure many of us are weary and sometimes we uh, almost in some ways dread the beginning of a new work week with all that we have on our plates, we thank you for the fact that there's spiritual rest that can be obtained here We pray, Father, that you'll lead us to those still waters and green pastures that we need for the restoration of our souls and encourage us tonight through your word. May each of us, as a child of God here tonight, have a sense of your presence and your ministry working in our lives. Thank you again that you know us as individuals so you're able to reach out and transcend any of the thoughts of others, even the things the preachers thought about and prepared to say. But you're able to go beyond this as as we contemplate and as we listen and speak to us in our hearts and meet our needs. For this we thank you and pray that it shall be so for each of us tonight. For I pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 5. I'd like to bring you the message that I've entitled tonight, Four Haunting Questions. After all, it'll be Halloween before soon, right? So this maybe is an apropos title, Four Haunting Questions. Speaking of that, I never saw much sense in a lot of this stuff that people go to to you. But uh, we were over visiting one of our neighbors just the other day, and land sakes, they had this great big tall, I guess like a werewolf. It was as tall as a man is. 
And I guess the thing was motion activated. So when you went up to it, it, it come up on the steps or something, this thing would go off and it would make noise and some lights and ratcha like that. And I, I, I told my neighbor, I'll have to watch and see if that gets anybody. I don't know. But it, it just, it won't get me now. I've seen it. Anyway, four haunting questions from Jeremiah chapter 5 this evening. You know, as you look through this chapter, there are a number of questions, and we've sort of been looking at that. That's kind of been a, a thing we've looked at for a while now in the morning services because we finished up a series that was called Penetrating Questions of Jesus. These were questions that Jesus asked people, and there, so many of them are so thought-provoking and helpful when we dig into them. But now they asked him this, and we're looking at kind of the opposite side of the street where people are asking Jesus questions, and those two are so revealing as, as people... Uh, as we were able to look inside people's hearts and minds and see how they reacted to things that Jesus said, and, 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 or even just as they come up out of the blue and, and blurted out a question of something that was on their mind. But tonight, God is asking four questions in this chapter tonight, and that's what we're going to be looking at. When you first look at this, you see some of the questions. There are some good candidates. For instance, right away in verse number 9, we come up on, Shall I not visit for these things? That's a really thought-provoking question as Jeremiah Remember, his message is a lot judgment. And so as he spells out the, the sinful conditions that are prevailing in the nation and starts to take the people somewhat to task for it here, and this is God asking a question, shall I not visit for these things? And if that, if that question is not enough one time, it's important enough for God to ask it twice. If we go down to verse 29, if you mark your Bible, here you'll find it again. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? So if you're kind of wondering when you see a verse like that that says, Shall I not visit for these things? This is not God paying a call at the hospital or God call, paying a call at your home. This is God visiting in judgment. That's the nature that's behind the question. So that's really a good question, and that would be a good prospect. But I really think if you were going to single out one verse in this chapter tonight, the most well-known and the most thought-provoking question that God asks is in the very last verse of the chapter. Let's read that. He says here, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, that is, by their own authority. And my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? That is really a thought-provoking question. However, there are some others. And so rather than singling out one of these tonight, since they all sort of weave together uh, as God is reaching out to his people and using these questions in, a, in another attempt to get them to think, think what you're doing. Um, I, I, would, I think what I'd like to do is just bring them all together and we'll talk about each of these questions tonight, hence the title, Four Haunting Questions. Sadly, the questions end up revealing the nation's sin, their denial, their pride, and their indifference. So we're going to be looking at those four thoughts as we look at these questions tonight. So the first one actually comes up. I did not call your attention to it by way of introduction. It's in verse number 7. Look there in your Bible and you'll see, here it is. How shall I pardon thee for this? Now, if God is asking that question, how shall I pardon thee for this? That ought to really get our attention. I will say that this is not God uh, asking in the sense that the people have committed the unpardonable sin. 
This is God reaching out to people to challenge them. You know, you are getting so far. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you get so far away from me and so deep into sin that you reach a point of no return? And that, that truly exists. I don't believe God reveals that to you and me. I don't, reveal, I don't believe that God gives us the ability in, in any instance just to go out and, and know when it is that, that a person has reached that point. There may be some instances where you pick that up. There may be some instances where you sort of think to yourself, but I will put it to you this way. I full well believe there are people walking around right now, they're alive, but they're as damned as if they had died and gone to hell already because they've crossed that point of no return. Only God really knows what that is with people, but sinking deeper and deeper into sin and neglecting and turning your back on God's repeated invitations to turn back to him are a sure way to get there in a big hurry. This is what God is trying to say by this question to people tonight. How shall I pardon for this? It's, it's to reach out to them and to get them to think, you know, have you thought about how far you're slipping? Have you thought about how deeply you're becoming involved in sin? Have you thought about what sin does to you, how it hardens your heart, how once you become involved in this and say no to repentance, how much easier it is for you to do that the second time and the third time and the fourth time until ultimately, have you thought about this? Have you thought about getting to a point where... I don't speak to you anymore. And then we truly have crossed that line and we truly are as lost as if we had died and gone to hell because without God speaking to us, we are totally undone. We don't have a hope in this world if God does not plead in our hearts and bring the convicting power of sin upon us to cause us to have interest in the Savior. How can God possibly pardon a people living in such blatant sin? So the first thought that we're looking at is God is challenging them by this question to reveal the nation's sin. In fact, it's so bad, and I don't know if you picked this up. I tried to read it in such a way that you might think of this. It's so bad that there's almost a subtle, not by name, but there's a subtle comparison to Sodom in verse number one. As I say, you won't see the name there, but look at what he says. He invites the people, run ye to and fro through the streets of Sodom and see now and know and seek in the broad places. Go wherever you want. Look where people gather together. Look in the broad places, he says. If you can find a man, one, if you can find any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, I'll pardon. <laughs> he made a better offer to them than he did to Sodom, right? Because if you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 18 and verse 32, don't do it. We don't need it. I think you're familiar enough with the story. But you remember that Abraham started praying to God. And he was interceding for that city, largely because Lot was in that place. But he was interceding. And he started out asking, he said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He says, that far be it from you to, 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 to condemn and to judge the righteous with the wicked. And he starts out with 50 and successfully Talks God down, if we can put it in that way, from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 10 to 20 to 10. And God leaves off talking with him at that point. 10. Jeremiah says, you know, it's gotten to be so bad in Judah. It's worse than Sodom. It's gotten to be so bad in Judah that one, can you find one? And God says, I'll extend pardon. That's bad. That's really bad. But if that weren't bad enough, then we think of some other problems that uh, went on in Sodom, and we think about the sin that was there. There was immorality. 
uh, in Judah, just as there was in Sodom. And if we skip ahead and just look a little bit at verses 7 through 8, how shall I pardon for this is where the question is. But he says here, they then committed adultery, assembled themselves in troops in harlots' houses. They were as fed horses in the morning. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Well, again, folks, you know, there are degrees of sin. And it's like this. It's like God doesn't condone fornication. God's against that. Marriage is honorable in all things and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. But it's another layer to go beyond this and to contravene the bonds of matrimony in the process of committing immorality and sin. And so he's, he's talking about this adultery that seems to be so prevalent and likens it to the fact that you've got a bunch of horses who have absolutely no moral scruples, whatever, and mate freely among themselves. And he says, it's gotten to be that bad in the land. There's kind of another thing that might think us about how bad it was really getting in the nation as compared to Sodom. There was a while there when Jeremiah was thinking, well, maybe it's just the poor ignorant people that don't know any better. That's really what he says in verse number three. That's not to reflect on any class of people or us even. It's just, he says this. He says, so he said, I, surely, he says, verse number four, I said, these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord. And then says, I will get me unto the great men. So he, then he goes to a different group of people thinking that they know the way of the Lord. And then he ends up seeing at the end of the verse, no. These have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. They're no better. That's how morally corrupt the society was getting to be. And although, as I say, there was immorality, and he calls them out for that, really the biggest sin that is going on here is the sin against the light. And this is where the Jews had a much higher degree of responsibility because, and this is what Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 2, in Romans chapter 1, he's pointing out that the Gentiles are guilty, but he comes back around and he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, that whosoever thou art that, thou art that judgest. And he's talking to the Jews in that, that chapter. And he says, So what advantage does a Jew have? He says, Much in every way, because to them were committed the oracles of God. They, they knew and had God's revelation, but yet, and they had the prophets such as Jeremiah, whose ministry was going on all the time, and yet they kept turning their backs on that and hardening their hearts. Sin against the light. Verse 3, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. That's bad. I mean, God is, is reaching out, chastening his people, but there's no response. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock, they have refused to return. And, and you recall my pointing out that word return there. It's not, he's not talking about returning from the captivity. He's talking about returning in the sense of repenting, coming back to the Lord. Instead of doing that and coming back to the time-honored values of God's word, they were casting them off. He said in verse 5, I will get me unto the great men and will speak unto them, for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. The great values that God commits to us and reveals to us in his word, they have, they have turned their backs on those. And a chapter later, if you'll turn a page, you may need to turn a page to get to this verse, but in chapter 6, verse 16, he uses a figure of speech to kind of capture what I'm talking about now. 
And he says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and seek for the old paths. We may talk about this next time. The old paths, where is the good way and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. The old paths. Well, you know, the old time religion and the absolute authority of the Bible, where is that today? Not too popular. In fact, no absolute authority is very popular. We're living in a, a day of rebellion as well. And Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, picks up on this very thought as well when he says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set. But, that's Proverbs 22 and verse 28, but we are doing that wholesale in America today. And we have much accountability before the Lord because we have had much opportunity. We have had much exposure and much availability to the light. This compounds the sin. This makes it all the worse. In fact, there's a Puritan name from the 17th century, Thomas Brooks. Some of you may have heard this name. But in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he tells a little story, and the story con concerns a man by the name of Theotimus. And it goes like this, that the doctors told Theotimus that except he abstain from drunkenness and uncleanness, it would cost him his eyes. The, the rampages of his sin within his body, it would cost him. They warned him. You're going to have to clean up your act, so to speak, or it's going to cost you your eyes. He goes on to say that his heart was so bewitched, he was so deep into his sins, that his answer was this, then farewell, sweet light. And that's about what America is doing today, thumbing her nose at God and having already said farewell, sweet light. That's all for the people maybe of 100 years ago, but it's not for us today. Well, what's wrong with the old-time religion and the absolute authority of the Bible? And so God asks this question. It's, it's a really thought-provoking one just to start off with. How shall I pardon? And he's dealing with the nation's sin. So next we come to something else. We come to verse number 9, and we come to verse number 29, another question that God asks, a second of the haunting questions that's actually given twice in the chapter. Shall I not visit for these things? So the first one confronts the nation living in such blatant sin, but the second one confronts the nation in her denial. What was this denial? Oh, God, isn't nothing's going to happen. God's not going to judge us for these things. And it's designed to show the people that they were living in this denial. It's like their heads were buried in the sand. They were willingly ignorant of what... And, and by the way, folks, this is exactly what Peter is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 2 or 3, when he says, of this they're... 3, he says, of this they're willingly ignorant. And he talks about the flood. And you know what? Nobody really wants to admit to that today because the moment you admit to that, you all of a sudden admit to the fact that you've got a God in heaven to whom men are accountable and responsible, who has such overwhelming power, and who does ultimately call men, men into accountability for their wickedness, who is one day going to judge the world again, only not by water, but by fire. 
that's a really scary thought if people would really consider it and let it sink down into their hearts. But they say, oh, no, no, that's, nobody believes that anymore. But yet, you know something? I challenge you. I don't know how many people here have been to the Grand Canyon before. But to me, you, if you walk up and look at that place, the first thing it screams to me is water, a lot of it moving fast. And I think to myself, it just amazes me how people can be so schooled, geologists and all these different people go there, and they'll talk about this and talk about that, but they won't talk about the flood. And you've got the Colorado River running down through that thing, and it's, it's, it's so obvious this whole thing is carved out by a massive flow, a huge, fast flow of water, and, but nobody really wants to to talk about that. Nobody, everybody has another explanation for it. It's like we have science today to explain away God so we don't need God anymore, so we don't have to admit that those things are true. We're living in denial. We have our heads in the sand. It's exactly like what he's talking about in verses 12 and 13. He says, they have belied the Lord. It's, it's as if people today say, well, it's as if God is a liar. We're right about evolution. The Bible is wrong. These things are not true. But to say all those things, you have to make God a liar. And said this in continuing the verse, If it it is not, is it not he, neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword or famine. Well, Jeremiah was up there preaching to them. God is going to send judgment. The Babylonians are coming. The sword, the famine, pestilence, disease, all this is awaiting you. If you don't turn from your sins, and they said, no, we're not going to see that. And it went so far that even the religious figures, verse 13, the prophets, he says, shall become wind, and the word is not in them, thus it shall be done unto them. So what he was using, the figure of basically saying, they're just like windbags. That's, that's just what they are. What they, whatever it is that they're saying, they're just like huge windbags because... They deny even the truth of God. Um, the prophets are but wind, is the way that's rendered uh, in, in one, one place. The prophets are but wind, just like no real substance, like the wind. When you're living in denial, let me give you an example of this. Years ago, I encountered this story and always thought that it was so... Uh, apropos and made the, the point so well that, but it was a number of years ago, a man, it was a Chinese, it was a wealthy Chinese businessman was visiting America. And he encountered uh, a, a very powerful microscope. He was fascinated by it. He looked through the microscope. He looked at crystals and was just amazed by the intricacy of the designs that he could see. He looked through the microscope at the petal of flowers and he was just awed at what he saw. And he thought to himself, I just have to have one of those. And so he bought one, he took it home, and he just continued to look at things and enjoyed what he saw. However, one day, he decided he would look at some rice that he had, that he, and he loved rice. And he went to look at the rice under the microscope, and he saw little things crawling around. And he thought, oh my, what am I going to do? The same thing you think if you get out a box of cereal or something and you've got bull weevils or something like that in there, what are you going to do? I'm throwing it out. But he thought to himself, I just can't have this. And he was torn between 
what the microscope had revealed to him and the fact that he loved the rice, he ended up destroying the microscope and throwing it away. Just couldn't handle it. Couldn't accept it. Couldn't live with it. That's living in denial, folks, and that's what Jeremiah is using, and God is using this question through Jeremiah. It's a question from God to kind of try to get the people's attention that they were living in denial. Thirdly, in chapter 5, verse 22, look down, you'll see a third question. He says, after all of this, Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence? which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it, it cannot pass it. And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet cannot, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain, but the former and the latter in his season he reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the amazing arrogance and pride in which people live that they actually have no fear of God. And yet God is an awesome and powerful creator. That's the, that's the image that's brought up. And the first thing that he uses as an example when he focuses their attention on on the power of God as evidenced in creation, he says, is the power of the sea. Now, you think about it. So what kind of a barrier does God set up for the sea? Not much, just the sand, right? Really, if you think about it. I mean, it's not even as good as some places around here where, you know, uh, it's been shown that there's flooding problems and so they've, they build a dike. When you come into Huntington on 22, you'll see that right away, right along the river there. It's a huge dike that's been built because they had flooding in Smithfield Township along the road there so many different times, and they finally got tired of that and sent the water further downstream, built that huge dike that's there. But God doesn't even erect a dike for the sea. God just, the sea just kind of comes up and laps at the sand. That's what he says in the verse if you look at it. He's placed the sand for the bound of the sea. So what really holds the sea in its place? It isn't some kind of a rampart. It isn't some kind of a bulwark or some kind of a wall that God has put up there to do it. It's just God's decree. There is none. There's just the sand and the power of God. So what happens if God decides to send a hurricane or something like that? What's going to stop it? And the fact of the matter is, nothing man's going to do is going to stop it. You know, they keep trying in New Orleans, and it doesn't work. I mean, a few things work, but not really if God gets serious. You know what I'm saying? And we just got done seeing this deal where the Bahamas, right? Is the Bahamas, right? This Category 5, that's the biggest that we, that we really have, hits the place, and so much of it is just underwater. What, what did they have to stop that? A big seawall or something? No, they didn't have anything, just sand. Sand and the power of God, but when God decides to exert and exhibit his power, but people flaunt themselves, you know? There's no fear of God before their eyes, is what uh, Paul tells us in the New Testament. He's actually quoting, then from, from uh, Psalm chapter 36, verses 1 and 2, but 
That aside, what's the second illustration? Well, then he talks about the rain in verse 24. So on the one hand, you have the power of the sea. On the other hand, you have the precious rain. And if you think about that, how do, how do we do if God decides to withhold the rain? How, how long and how well do we do for how long? Not too long. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth us rain. Well, what are you going to do if you don't have any rain? You know, California had all those terrible problems with that. And I don't know, they might still. And half of them they brought on themselves. But a whole, maybe all, because half they, it's, it's some of these schemes they have for all of, you know, they've fallen in love and worship, worship it seems, in the house of ecology. That's become like a god in America today. And that's the, seems like the place where it's worshiped the most. So some of man's own doings that way, but then some of the, the, the evil and wickedness that's in our country, we don't do so well, right? I mean, if you don't have the crops, if you don't have food, I mean, you haven't, folks, you and I don't know anything about problems until something like that happens, until the grocery stores don't have food. Just I want you to think about that for a moment. Now, people living in a more rural context, like many people around here know a little something about it. They actually know where corn comes from, where milk comes from. You know, it doesn't just come from Giant or Walmart. So they may do a little better, they may last a little bit longer, but think about America's big urban centers and, and how little people really know in those places. So what happens when the shelves start to go empty in the supermarkets? And you start having hundreds of thousands of people looting and rampaging and even getting to the place where they turn on even their own friends and neighbors because you're so desperate. You haven't seen anything yet. Neither have I. I'm just saying it, it can get horrible. But people still flaunt themselves in God's face as, as if God didn't exist and if God's power weren't there and God didn't have the ability to call men into judgment. And God says, don't you fear me? And people say, not really. Then we come to the last question. And this, as I say, it's, it's almost like everything comes to a climax with this question in verse number 31, where he says, a wonderful, verse 30, and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. A lot of that today. The priests spare rule by their means or by their own authority. In other words, they do what they do on their own ideas and 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 thoughts. And my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof, God says? What are you going to do when time runs out? What are you going to do when it all starts to catch up to you? Because you know it's going to. I really wonder sometimes what we think in our country. And, you know, I, I have... It's one of the things I enjoy preaching about, preaching from the prophets, because nothing much changes. Nothing is new under the sun. It's, it's different days, different times. We dress a little differently today. We maybe have some different customs, but it's the same fallen nature and man's same sinful heart, and the same sins go on in our society today that Jeremiah was preaching against in Judah in his day. 
And I really think to myself, you know, all right, well, for example, what about the national debt? We just keep ignoring that and keep ignoring that and keep ignoring that. Do, do we really think that you can just do that indefinitely and it, it not at, at some point lead to some kind of a blow up? I don't know. I don't know what we think. We, we, we've just, seems to me like, gotten to the place where we've, we've been given over to a reprobate mind. Nobody even thinks, very few people think straight anymore. And what Jeremiah was saying is, you know, how are you going to really complain? Because you have exactly what you deserve because that's what you tolerate. My people love to have it so. And I don't mean to be unkind, but I think we have about what we deserve in our country because we tolerate it. I think if people really got serious, you know, these politicians, the only reason they're there is because they keep winning elections. And if you think about how many votes just, how many people just never go? How many people don't even register? How many people just figure, uh, they're too entrenched, there's nothing you can do about it? Well, I could see where you could get discouraged, but I'm just telling you folks, we have what we have because we, we tolerate it. We put up with it. I don't know if you ever really thought very much about the expression deadline, but some time ago I got to thinking about this a little bit and started to look into it to see if I couldn't figure out where this comes from because this is a lot of what God is talking about in this chapter, you know, what will you do in the end thereof? What will you do when you've crossed the deadline? We use that expression a lot of times. We say, well, you know, my, my uh, boss gave me a deadline or something like that. Did you ever think to yourself, where'd that expression come from? And the answer that I find most often that's given to that question is from the war between the states, from the prisoner of war uh, camp that the southern states had at Andersonville, Georgia. And there was a, a large acre complex there where they brought a number of Union prisoners that were originally more up in the Richmond area, but brought them down where they thought that they maybe could have more food and care for them better. But the conditions there ended up being terrible. But the place was surrounded. I mean, if you can think about some of the prisons we look at today, but the, the place was, was built on 200 plus acres eventually it was expanded to and it was enclosed with a, a wooden stockade that was somewhere in the vicinity of 15 to 17 feet tall. So you, you'd have a hard time scaling that even if you could get to it. But in order to ensure that people couldn't get to it, they had a little drop, you drop back from the actual stockade about somewhere in the range of about 15 to 17 feet. It was nothing more than just a post every so often and like a two-by-four or a rail running along the top. That's all it was. And then every 90 feet along the stockade, they had what they call pigeon nests, is what they came to be called, and the guards were in those. And if you so much as put your hand or in any way crossed that 
little fence that was set back 15 to 17 feet, you'd be shot. And that was why it was called the deadline. Now, maybe they give you a free pass if all they saw was your hand go through, but certainly if you, if you tried to get under that, that's how they ensured that they never had any problem with escapees is because you had 15 feet to cross before you could even get to the stockade. If they saw you come across that little flimsy fence, that was the deadline. And they'd shoot you. You'd be dead. And I fear. Jeremiah feared. And God asked these questions in, in some sense, yet still to extend uh, mercy to them, to challenge them, to think and to reconsider their position. But the people were living in indifference. What will you do in the end thereof? And but my people love to have it so. Now the, the, now the thing that the question is designed to expose is the great indifference of people. And boy, I'll tell you what, folks, we certainly have that on every hand today. Lots of problems with indifference. You know, C.S. Lewis had something to say about this in the Screwtape Letters, and I know that uh, many of you are familiar with this, but... In the screw tape letters, um, uh, you have the character Wormwood. And Wormwood was the devil's nephew. And so you have this scene where um, the devil is kind of briefing Wormwood on some of the techniques that he wants him to use. And so the devil says, you know, the goal, this is how he counsels him. He says, the goal is not wickedness. He said, the goal is indifference. And he cautions his nephew to keep the patient comfortable at all costs. Because if he should become concerned about anything of importance, then you should encourage him to think about his luncheon plans. Not to worry, it could induce indigestion. And then he says this to him in kind of what has been called the definitive job description when the devil says, I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with the people who do not care. And it seems like Wormwood's doing a good job today, doesn't it? Yes. It was that way in the days of Jeremiah. And he says, what will you do in the end thereof? What will you do when it's too late, when the blow-up happens? In just a few moments, I have a closing song for us that I've picked tonight, and you know this is familiar to all of us, but before we sing, I want to tell you a little bit of the story behind it because this is a Fanny Crosby song, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. How, how did Fanny Crosby come to write that particular song? And the answer is, is that she had on one occasion an invitation to speak uh, in a, a prison and it was a state prison, and while she was there speaking, she heard one of the men actually cry out, Good Lord, do not pass me by. Do not turn your back on me. Do not ignore me. Forget me. Neglect me. And as Fanny Crosby told the story, she said that this, this, this thought, hearing that man say those words, it stuck with her so that she went home and she wrote the four stanzas to pass me not, O oh, gentle Savior, do not pass me by. And then she ultimately turned the, 
the lyrics over to a man by Doan, by the name of Doan, who wrote the, the music for it. And of course, William Doan is known with a number of different ones that he's written the melody for. But the song was first written, or was written in 1868, but it became the first of Fanny Crosby's songs to sort of become internationally known because it was picked up by Moody and Sankey, who used it in their revivals in England. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Let's take our songbooks and turn to that page here tonight. You'll find that on page 320.